So we're about one fifth of the way through earnings season. What we've seen in that first fifth is anything but awful. I think with, I wrote down the numbers here. Um, the average sales beats about 1.5%. That's pretty average. That's pretty good. Average EPS beat about 4.7%. That's pretty average, pretty good. So we're a fifth of the way through an earnings season that was supposed to be awful. And it's turning out to be pretty freaking good. And it's turning out to be pretty freaking good because guess what? The consumer is still pretty strong. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, what's going on today? Uh, how you doing, Aaron? Yeah, it's it's a good day. Um, it's been a good uh, week. It's been a good month for the market. Um, it's Halloween next week, uh, so I'm very excited about that. Uh, all is well over here. It's It's a happy time. Okay, so based off what you just said, I think we want to get to the bottom of the biggest question that everybody's going to have. What are you going to be for Halloween? I am going to be Elvis Presley for Halloween. <laughs> okay. I, I uh, did you see the movie Elvis? I haven't seen it yet. It's on my watch list, but I, but I can even without seeing that movie, I see you and I see the embodiment of the king himself. I, the movie is, is fantastic. I, uh, you know, when, when you're growing up in my generation, Elvis was just the Vegas guy. Like that's all he was, right? He's just the Vegas guy. So you go to Vegas. Oh, this is where Elvis was. And Elvis made Vegas. And you didn't really know Elvis beyond Vegas. I didn't know about the Elvis movies. I didn't know about, you know, Elvis before the war. I didn't know they, they sent Elvis to the war. I didn't know any of his story mm -hmm. for a long time. I just accepted him as the Vegas guy. And so the movie really kind of just opened my entire perception of Elvis and understood that he was this really complex character who had a really tragic life. Anyways, I resonated with it. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is so interesting that I never knew anything about this, how talented he was and all that stuff. So anyways, long story short, I was inspired by the movie and um, I'm going to be Elvis for Halloween. There you go. All right, cool. Well, I'm excited for Halloween. I'm excited for you for Halloween and I'm excited to get into our topics in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, vertical farming, inflation, housing market, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get hypergrowth investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Luke, I want to dive right in. Uh, mm -hmm. You've said before that the micros about stocks start mattering once the macro stops mattering. So that's, again, why we've been focusing on these weekly conversations around macroeconomic developments. Right. Keeping that in mind this week, given we're still in this bear market, does it look like we are trying to claw our way out of it? What do you make, sense, what do you make of what we had last week with the recent rally? Right. So I, I think the rally has legs. Um, it could just be a massive counter trend rally, but at the very least, it will be a big counter trend rally of 10 to 15 percent, if not more. Um, earnings have been very strong. Uh, yields are coming off their highs. Stocks have been performing well. The Fed is there's talk of, of a Fed pivot again. 
Um, and importantly, this talk feels much more substantiated than previous um, previous talk. So the the winds have changed direction um, toward a much more bullish stance. And so I think the rally that got underway last week has legs into this week, next week, over the next few weeks. And whether or not that continues for several months and into a new bull market remains to be seen. But I'm cautiously optimistic based on the data that we have today that one, we are due for a massive counter-trend rally, and two, that counter-trend rally has a good chance of turning into a new bull market. So that's where I stand on what we've seen in the market and what we may see going forward. So what's actually causing this shift in the winds, as you say? Because uh, it, it, it seems that a lot of the things that we've been talking about when we're talking about these, the things that are affecting the market, just haven't really seemed to shift it takes time to shift. So what happened last week to cause this? Right. Well, um, inflation is coming down, maybe not at the pace that a lot of people want it to come down, but, but it is coming down. So that's the first shift that's happening. Um, the Fed is finally actually considering slowing its pace of rate hikes that for months and months and months, Wall Street was not believing the Fed and the Fed was staying very, very, very hawkish. Not a single Fed member veered from the hawkish consensus. But over the past three weeks, three different Fed members have veered from the hawkish consensus. And then the Wall Street Journal put out that article on Friday, which said that the Fed is considering you know, a slowdown. And a lot of people were like, well, that's not really news. I mean, we knew they were considering a slowdown because three Fed members said it over the past three weeks. And, and yes, that's true. But you have to understand that that article was put out by a journalist who has over the past year essentially become the Fed's mouthpiece. That whenever <laughs> the Fed wants to communicate something to the markets without directly communicating it, they leak a story to that journalist who then puts it out. So the fact that that journalist put out that article – strongly indicates that the Fed wanted that article out, which means the Fed really is not just three people, but the entire board is thinking about slowing down their pace of rate hikes. So that's the second shift underway. First shift, inflation is definitely slowing. Second shift are falling. Second shift is the Fed is definitely considering a pivot. Third shift is the bond market is now starting to react to that globally. So a lot of central banks have capitulated. Um, we've talked about Britain, we've talked about Australia, we've talked about Poland. Um, uh, and, and in response to that, yields are starting to come off. British yields are down, German yields are down, French yields are down, Spanish yields are down, Australian yields are down, and now American yields are coming off their highs. So yields are now also retreating. So we've seen those three big shifts. And then the fourth shift, not really a shift, more of an upside surprise, is that Everybody and their best friend thought third quarter earnings were going to be horrible. Mm -hmm. Everybody thought that the economy was rapidly slowing. Consumers and enterprises aren't spending money, so sales are going to get hit, hit hard. And inflation is still pretty hot, so margins are going to get compressed, and that's going to result in you know slower sales growth, lower margins, potentially negative profit growth, definitely negative profit surprises. So everybody was bracing for a really ugly third quarter earnings season. And what we've seen so far, about 23% of the S&P has reported earnings, so around one-fifth of the way through earnings season. What we've seen in that first fifth is anything but awful. I think – I wrote down the numbers here – 
Um, the average sales beats about 1.5%. That's pretty average. That's pretty good. Average EPS beat about 4.7%. That's pretty average, pretty good. So we're a fifth of the way through an earnings season that was supposed to be awful. And it's turning out to be pretty freaking good. And it's turning out to be pretty freaking good because guess what? The consumer is still pretty strong. This is a consumer that for 15 years post 08 saved a lot of money. Then the pandemic hit and they saved even more money. So this consumer is sitting on a lot of savings. The labor market's also strong. So the consumer has a job and has a bunch of savings. That's a consumer that is still spending in this environment. So earnings are staying strong. Enterprises are the same way. Enterprises played conservative 15 years. They played ultra conservative in the pandemic. They're also still spending because they have demand from consumer spending and they have a bunch of savings, huge cash on the balance sheets, huge cash flow from the balance sheet. So consumers and enterprises are still spending. Sales growth remains positive. We're looking at 10% average sales growth so far in Q3 for S&P 500 companies. That's very strong. Yes, margins are coming in a little bit because of inflation, but they're not coming in enough to offset that 10% sales growth. Average EPS growth, 1.2% so far in Q3. So we're still getting positive earnings. We're still getting positive earnings, positive surprises and positive growth. So that was a total upside surprise a lot of people didn't see coming. So you couple that upside surprise with a shift in inflation, a shift in the Fed, and a shift in yields, and that creates a recipe upon or a recipe for stocks to move higher, at least in the short term and likely in the medium and long term. Okay, so if we are in the beginning of this, of what hopefully is a long-term rally, uh, we've right. talked before, nobody can kind of predict when the bottom hits, but you've mentioned before bottoming signals. Mm -hmm. Can you go over that with us? What are the bottoming signals that you're seeing and have we hit that proverbial hopeful bottom and we're in that turnaround now? Permanently. Right, right. So, yeah, we like to think of it as, as a bottoming process, not a bottoming, not a day. The market bottoms, right? The, the market's going to bottom on, on a single minute in a single day, and pretty much all of us are going to miss it, right? I mean, that's just how it is. But you don't have to time the bottom perfectly in order to make a lot of money by buying the day. That you just have to understand when the bottom is close, when the bottom is near, when the market's in a bottoming process, buy within a couple week, couple month stretch of that, and you will be fine. So that's how we view it, the bottoming process, not a bottoming day. And yes, we've seen a ton of signals emerge over the past two to three weeks, which strongly imply that we're in the bottoming process and the market has either already bottomed or is very close, both in terms of time and price, to forming a durable bottom. Now, some of the signals that we're watching, I kind of wrote them down because there's a whole bunch of them and I just wrote down a couple. I have like 10 or 11 here. <laughs> Um, the first is valuations, right? We've talked about this. The forward P multiple on the S&P 500 came down to about 15.4, 15.5 times at its minimum about two weeks ago. The bear market of 2020, the bear market of 2018, the bear market of 2001, 2002, they all ended with the forward earnings multiple right around 14 to 16 times. So bear markets without a deep recession – tend to bottom around that 14 to 16 times forward earnings range. So we got to that valuation bottom. I don't see a deep recession happening in 2023. So as a result, I think that the fact that stocks bottomed this time around in that 14 to 16 times range makes a lot of sense. So the valuation is, is one of the bottoming signals that we saw that made us really bullish. A second one is, um, is financial conditions. So if you look at Bloomberg's financial conditions index, which kind of takes – 
into account yields, stock prices, commodity prices, all these things that measure how tight financial conditions are. That index dropped below minus one just three or four weeks ago. Historically speaking, over the past 25 years, whenever that index drops below minus one, the stock market is close to forming a local bottom. So that's the second bottom. You know, financial conditions are tight enough or as tight today as they are when the market tends to bottom in the past. So that's another bottoming signal we've been following. Um, a third one is that the S&P 500's price is about 23% below the S&P 500 price target from Wall Street analysts. And Wall Street analysts have been cutting their price targets all year long, but still, even after all those cuts, stocks have fallen faster than the cuts. Stocks are 23% below the S&P 500 price target, consensus price target from Wall Street analysts. That is consistent with bottom. Stocks tend to bottom when they're about 20 to 30% below the consensus S&P 500 price target. We are at 23% right now. We bottomed around 23, 24%. So again, we got into that bottoming range, held it, and are now bouncing out. That's pretty bullish. Um, another one is if you look at Bank of America has a monthly fund manager survey where they survey a bunch of fund managers in their, in their network to see what are you guys doing with your money and you know, are you bullish, are you bearish. And the, the cash levels of those fund managers are at record highs. As you would imagine, cash levels tend to get really high near bear market bottoms because everybody's bearish. It represents capitulation. And it means there's a lot of firepower on the sidelines for when the market turns to come in and spark a rally. Those cash levels have hit record highs recently. So that's another bottoming signal that says, hey, we're at or near capitulation. And when we turn the corner, there's a lot of cash, fund institutional cash on the sidelines ready to come into the market. So that, that's another signal. Then I'm sure you've heard about all the sentiment being washed. If you look at the uh, American Association of Individual Investors survey, that's one of them. But you look at Barron's survey, any survey out there that surveys investors about their sentiment, it is at peak bearish levels. We are truly, and retail investors are as bearish today as they've ever been. And it's probably because I was reading a Financial Times article that cited J.P. Morgan client data. And the market is down about 20, 22, 23, 24, 25% this year. But- Retail investors, their portfolios are down 45% on average. So you look at the headline and it's like 25% bear market. Oh, that's bad, but it's not awful. But the average, your average Joe is getting crushed way worse than that. They're down 45% in 2022. That's about as bad as a retail investor has ever taken it in the market. And the reason that discrepancy exists is because the S&P 500 is being held up by a few large cap stocks, by Apple, Microsoft. And without those, the rest of the market is getting absolutely washed down 50, 60 percent. So with retail investors down 45 percent year to date in 2022, that's about as bad as they've ever taken it. It's no wonder that their sentiment is as washed as it's ever been. The bullish thing is that when sentiment gets this washed, when sentiment gets this, gets this bearish, it represents peak fear. It represents capitulation, and it tends to correlate with market bottoms. So that's another bottoming signal. The sentiment is so so washed. Another one: insider buying. The insider buy sell ratio just peaked above zero point one four. Zero point one four has been a critical level. That when we peak above that on the buy sell ratio, stock market tends to bottom. It's happened time and time again over the past 20 years. So we're above that level. Insiders are getting increasingly bullish. That is also a bullish signal. 
And then you have, you know, technical indicators like McClellan oscillator, which represents like it's a very important market breadth indicator that just broke below a super negative reading that it rarely breaks below. And every time it does break below it, stocks are higher 12 months later. Specifically on that one, McClellan oscillator, the 50 day moving average when it breaks below minus 50, which is what we just broke below. That's happened 109 times over the past 35 years, all 109 times with zero exception stocks <laughs> higher 12 months later, 109 data points, 100% accuracy rate stocks were higher 12 months later, average return of about 30%. So that was like, that's a huge bottoming signal, right? Um, then you have things like the percentage of stocks trading below their 200 day moving average Stocks tend to bottom. The market tends to bottom when that's in the zero to twenty percent range. We fell at our at our minimum to about I think twelve or thirteen percent. So we got to that bottoming range. So across all of these metrics, you're just seeing that the market is is beaten up. Investors are washed out. Valuations are depressed. Things just feel like they're working towards a bottom across pretty much every single metric. And then you throw in the fact that okay, October. Bear markets tend to die in October. Pretty weird, seems pretty random. But of all the bear markets we've had since World War II, 33% of them, actually I think it's 35% of them, six of them have died in October. October is a bear market killer. Totally weird, totally strange, maybe a random data point, sure. but But not random when you couple it with the fact that what is October? October is the month before November. What happens in November? Elections happen in November. And specifically this year, the midterms happen in November. Since 1950, the stock market has never had a negative return in the six months following a midterm election. The six months following a midterm election from November, December, January, February, March, June, that stretch is a is always a positive stretch for stocks. Always. We've never had a negative stock market return in that six-month stretch. And that's because midterm elections create a lot of political uncertainty. Markets hate uncertainty. When the midterm elections happen, that uncertainty becomes political certainty. Stocks rally on that certainty. So that actually makes fundamental sense. So now let's couple that with bear markets tend to die in October. Seems random, but not random. Bear markets tend to die in October because political certainty arrives in November. So when you look at it from that perspective, it's like, oh, wow. You have all of these bottoming signals. You have these seasonal tailwinds. You have these political tailwinds. It's starting to feel like a lot of things are working in favor of the market. And then you throw on top of it all the most important thing, which is that earnings have come in very strong. And you're working towards a thesis that looks pretty legit when it comes to stocks, probably bottomed, and we're due for a pretty big rally here. So that's when we talk about all these bottoming signals we're seeing, why we're so confident. It's because the data is telling us to have the confidence right now. And so we're very confident saying stocks at least have a 10 to 15% runway here for a massive counter trend rally. And if it was one or two, you wouldn't be, you know, kind of preaching from the rafters about what's happening. But you just listed out, you know, five or six and you said you had more that you just didn't didn't even write down. So it seems like we're in pretty good shape right now. 
the ones I wrote down, I mean, I, I went over 10 of them. And yeah, I mean, I am finding new ones every single day. And they're iterations of one another. So it's not like there's 100 different things out there. They're all kind of coming from the same um, uh, analysis. But the fact of the matter is that all these indicators are saying one thing. Stocks are so beaten up. Sentiment is so washed. Investors are so fearful that basically you don't need much to light a rally here. And what we're getting is strong earnings. The earnings aren't fantastic, but hell, they're, they're good enough. And good enough is causing massive rallies. So that, that's, the risk reward just looks really skewed towards the upside at these levels. So talking about earnings season, as we're uh, in our right. third quarter earnings season, you talked about how the ones that have come in so far have been uh, exceeded mm-hmm. the expectations of what people thought it, they were going to be. Yep. What's on deck for the next few weeks? What are the rest of with what has come out already? Mm-hmm. What's the what are people thinking that the next round of uh, earnings coming in? Yeah, so um, I I think earnings are going to get better and better and better and better and better, and that's kind of been the theme of this this earnings season is that the more companies report, the better the numbers look. When the first week rolled around about three weeks ago, the first week of the third quarter earnings season. And I was looking at the earnings scorecard and it was, it was miserable. Negative earnings surprises, negative sales surprises, negative growth, negative stock price reactions. It was negative across the board. The earnings scorecard was horrendous. Then the second week came in and really good numbers headlined by Netflix. Then the third week came in, bunch of banks, really good. It's like, whoa, okay. All of a sudden the numbers started to get a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot better. And now, like I said, we're looking at positive sales surprises, positive earnings surprises, positive growth and positive stock price reaction. So in a matter of three weeks, we went from 2% of companies reporting to 23% of companies reporting. And we went from negative on everything that matters to positive on everything that matters. That's a pretty big shift. And I think that we're going to, that shift is going to continue because I'm very confident in some of the companies that are reporting over the next two weeks to report some pretty good numbers. I think the tech heavyweights, absent Apple, I'm not really confident on Apple. Um, I think the tech heavyweights are going to report some pretty good numbers. And I think that's going to lift the market. And I think that beneath them, you're going to have a lot of small, the mid cap technology, energy, consumer discretionary stocks that are going to report some pretty good numbers as well. Because again, like I said, the consumer is really resilient. People are really underestimating the consumer this time around. Going into 08, Going into 2000, 2001, the consumer was not that strong. The labor market was not as strong as it is today. Unemployment was not as low as it is today. Wages were not as high as they are today. And savings were not that high. People really underestimate um, the impact of 2008. That really, post-2008, people saved money at an above-normal clip for 15 years. Or not 15 years, for 12 years. And then the pandemic hit and savings ballooned like crazy. So we're going into this recession or this slowdown, whatever you want to call it. We're going into it with a consumer that is saved at above normal rates for 15 years. And a lot of people are like, oh, but the personal savings rate just dropped below. You know, it's at its lowest level since 2007. You're right. It has dropped low recently. But guess what? It was above normal for 15 years. So the fact that it dropped below normal for two quarters does not erode the fact that for 15 years, these consumers saved a lot of money. They're sitting on huge excess savings. They still have jobs. Incomes are good. Yes, inflation is high, but consumers are taking it on the chin and they're continuing to spend. So I think that that is really, you know, consumer drives 70% of the U.S. economy. I look at the consumer and I see strength. 
And that's what the earnings are speaking to, the strength of the consumer. Mm-hmm. And that's surprising everybody. And I think it's going to continue to surprise people. And then here's where the put comes in, the put option. The Fed always pivots when the consumer starts to break. So this is why I'm, I'm really bullish. The consumer is strong right now. So long as they remain strong, earnings are going to keep going higher. Once they stop being strong, that's going to be because the labor market starts to break. Once that happens, the Fed will pivot. Once the Fed pivots, yields come crashing down, stock multiples go higher, stocks go higher, and everything gets better. So I think we're kind of sitting at this point right now where the consumer is strong enough to almost ensure, absent a black swan event, that stocks go higher because either the consumer stays strong, the labor market stays strong, and rate hikes don't destroy the economy, so earnings keep going higher, or labor market does collapse, consumer gets weak, and the Fed pivots, and stocks go higher anyways because stocks like lower rates. So it's kind of like, well, we're getting to that point where you do have the Fed put back in play, and that's why a lot of people are getting, I think, um, cautiously optimistic about the outlook for the market over the next 12 months. Is this, uh, you know, you're talking about how people have been saving since 08. Mm-hmm. So is this trend of consumer spending up while the market's down, is that new or is that something that does have some historical precedent? No, it, oh, it's, it's a good question. It's a good question. Um, earnings are normally a lagging indicator, but I think that, What we're seeing today is mostly unprecedented in the fact that stocks are down so far, like 25%, without earnings taking any hit. Like earnings are still rising. So for stocks to be down 25% with earnings not coming down at all and consumer spending remaining as busted as that is, that is pretty unprecedented. And I think there are some unique factors to this situation that allow for that. Again, this 15 years of saving. But I think another big thing here is People aren't having kids and starting families, okay? And I can tell you that as somebody who went from being single to having a family, that that latter version of me is the version of me that pays attention to the economy, gets worried when things are slowing, and stops spending. That Mm -hmm. former version of me didn't give two flying Fs. (laughs) Going to keep spending, going to make more money, it's going to be all good. I think there's a lot of people in that boat right now because you're getting a lot of delayed life events. A lot of people aren't having kids, aren't getting married. They have a lot of single people in this world. You have a lot of people still living at home with their parents in this world. So I think there is a huge swath of the market that or the consumer market that, you know, 20, 25 years ago would have taken the economic signals as a warning sign and would have slowed their spending. And now they're just like, whatever. And they're just, you know, continuing to do their thing. And that might seem like laissez-faire, like, oh, these guys are going to, you know, get screwed. But that might be a self-fulfilling prophecy. They're whatever actually continues, you know, that powers the economy. And so I think that that is another factor here that is really understated in why the consumer remains so strong in the face of what are ostensibly pretty vicious headwinds. Because here's the thing people understand. It's kind of like the chicken and goose, uh, or the chicken and egg argument, right? Um, The labor market will collapse when spending dries up. Spending will dry up once people start losing their jobs. So which is going to break first, right? If people people keep spending with a laissez-faire attitude, the labor market's never going to collapse. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
Like if if I keep buying vests, if I they, keep they buying each other. Yeah, and then that that company is going to keep making money, so they're going to keep hiring people, and they're not going to fire people. So it's kind of like the self-fulfilling prophecy. It's this loop. It's this cycle that I, I think right now it's on pretty solid footing for in, in, in a positive manner for for stocks. And again, if that cycle breaks, I think the put here is the Fed comes in and does cut rates. And that's what that Wall Street Journal article last Friday strongly hinted at. Now, another thing to mention here on, on the Fed is that the market is finally on the same page as the Fed. And I think we talked about this last week, that for months and months and months, the market was not believing the Fed. And they said, we're going to go to 5%. We're going to go to 5%. We're going to go to 5%. The market was you know, sitting at 3%, 3.5%, 4%. Well, now the market's at 5%. So it's priced for peacockishness. And what's interesting is that, and you look at the past decade, um, the Fed just started doing the economic projections like 10 years ago. So there's only 10 years of data here. But um, in that 10 years of data, the futures market almost never prices in a peak rate above the economic projections from the Fed. That the, the, the Fed is always above the, the market in terms of uh, peak rate. Now they're equal. And the fact that they're equal means that we are uniquely priced for peak hawkishness in a way that allows for a lot of dovish surprise in 2023. And that, that's a bullish setup. That's another shift. It's a shift in expectations that is conducive towards uh, stock market value. Okay. So we've talked about a lot of, you know, good signals for the market moving forward, but your enemy and, and the market's enemy has been the 10 year treasury yield. Oh, uh, it's at, yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> at its highest level since 2007 right now. Uh, are yields ever going to stop going up? Yeah. The dang 10 year treasury. Yield. It's been the enemy of everybody. Um, yeah. So I think yields are, I mean, they have defied my expectations entirely and I've been wrong about it. But I think that I'm going to eventually be very right about them. The, the math <laughs> just says that they are totally, totally maxed out. I mean, technically, they're overextended. They're overbought, as overextended and overbought as they've ever been. I think I have a – let me make sure I, I say this right. But I, I think they're as far above their 200-day moving average as they've ever been by like a wide margin. Yeah, so the 10-year Treasury yield has never been more than about 150% above its 200-day moving average. And recently, we were like 240% above it. That's like ridiculous. Like it's ridiculous over and overbought they are. So that means they're almost definitely due for a pullback. But mathematically speaking, the 10-year the Treasury yield tends to trade about 150 basis points above the Fed funds rate. That's over the past like 50 years, that's been the relationship. But when the market starts to sense that the Fed is in the last stages of its rate hike cycle and that the Fed funds rate is about to peak and potentially even move lower, so when we're in the, in the late stage cycle, then the 10-year treasury yield tends to trade 50 to 100 basis points below the Fed funds rate. It happened in it happened in the late 1980s, it happened in the late 1990s, it happened in the early 2000s, it happened in around the 2008 great financial crisis. Um, it happened in in 2020. This is when the 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 market starts to sense, okay, the Fed is close to being done. 
And when that happens, a 10-year treasury yield goes from trading significantly above the Fed funds rate to trading significantly below the Fed funds rate, about 50 to 100 basis points below every single time without fail. Let's look at the Fed funds rate. They say they're going to go to 4.5%, 5%. The market thinks they get there by early 23. That's probably going to happen. Fed gets to, let, let's call it, let's be ultra hot because they get to 5%. Fed gets to 5% by 20, early 2023. Market starts to sense, okay, we are near a peak. Like this is the end of the Fed rate hike cycle. We're probably going to get a pause and or some cuts over the next few months. So the market starts to price in 50 to 100 basis points below that peak rate. Now you're talking about a 4, 4.5% 10-year treasury yield in early 23. And then as those rates come lower, let's say they cut to, you know, four and a half, they cut to four, they cut to 3.5. And that's how that 10-year treasury yield goes from where it is today, 4.1 to four, to three and a half, to three, to two and a half, to two. So based on the math alone, yields are completely maxed out. They're full. So what happens next is probably a series of cuts that allows for yields to move lower. I think yields have peaked, and I think that's going to be a major reason why stocks go higher in 2023, that earnings are going to move higher while yields go lower. So one side of the stock price equation, EPS times P multiple equals stock price, one side is going to move higher, EPS is going to move higher, and then P multiple is going to move higher too because yields are going to move lower. When P multiples expand alongside growing earnings, that's when you get really good years in stocks. And I think that's when we get in 2023. Okay. So we have that starting in 2023, but there's also been talk, uh, again, of recession in 2023. You've used the word before. You've called it a slowing down. Is recession in 2023, is it happening or not? Right. So everyone seems to think that a recession is, is a done deal in 2023. And I don't think that. I think it's going to be a growth recession, which is just a period of slower than normal growth. But I think we're still going to keep growing. I think, the, again, it goes back to the consumer is very, very strong right now. And at the point that they aren't very strong is the point at which the Fed will come in, save the day, and the recession that we do see, if we do see one, will be very shallow and short-lived. So I don't see a deep recession happening in 2023. And the probability of outcomes, I think a growth recession is most likely, and then a shallow recession is second most likely, and a deep recession is far out on the probability curve. So when we're making our investment decisions, we are making those decisions on the assumption that what we get in 2023 is either a slowdown or a very mild recession. And so it's going to be some flavor of that. And on that assumption, I think stocks can move higher in, in 2023. Okay, so then what's the play? Where are the stocks to buy in that kind of in those scenarios? Yeah, so in, in a slowdown, right? You want to look for kind of uh, resilient stocks in a slowdown, and that's you know a lot of consumer discretionary stocks. Believe it or not, tend to do really well. Like in 08, a lot of the stocks that did well were consumer discretionary stocks, and they were stocks that were focused. Uh, think about things that you're going to spend more on when you know your budget gets a little bit tighter. So discount retailers. Uh, TJ Maxx, Ross Stores, Walmart, those Costco, those stocks can tend to do pretty well in, in a slowing economy or a slower economy. Uh, think about um, AutoZone. AutoZone is a stock that does very well in a slowdown. So that, that's a name people should, should write down if they're worried about a slowdown. Um, pet stocks do really well. Pet care. 
Uh, pet care spending is very recession resilient. It, it rose dramatically in twenty in 2001. It rose dramatically in 2008. It rose dramatically in 2020. People continue to spend on their pets in, in recessions because, you know, you need to eat in a recession and so does your pet. And then there's also this weird thing that like pets are like comfort animals. And so like when things get tough, people buy pets. I don't know. It's a thing. Um, and so, you know, pet care spending tends to be very strong when the economy slows. So names like Chewy, Petco, uh, those are, are interesting names for, for a recession or for a slowdown in, in 2023. Um, and then you got to look, you know, your, your consumer staples, Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson. You know, those, those are strong, you know, dividend payers, stable growers for, for 23. So if you are worried about a slowdown, you're worried about a recession, I think, you know, Conger, concentrating your portfolio in, in discount retailers, in uh, um, pet stocks, in um, food stocks, grocery stocks, Kroger, the uh, big grocery operator, that's, that, that should be a good play for 23 if there's, if there's a slowing. So concentrating in those stocks seems to make a lot of sense. Uh, what about real estate? You know, you've been bullish on it. Uh, I did read an interesting article the other day where, you know, mortgages are going up. So sentiment's going down. I know that you've talked about that the sentiment in your group of cohort is up. But uh, what's going on with the housing market and into next year? Right. So I, I, um, I see a bottom in the foreseeable future for the housing market that um, home prices are coming down. Uh, you're getting dis- shelter disinflation. Um, buyers are still there. Uh, inventory is still low and I think mortgage rates are peaking out. So I think in 2020, 20, throughout the rest of the year, I think the housing market will remain in, in a tough, in tough condition. But I think in 2023, a combination of slightly lower prices, falling mortgage rates, still tight inventory and still robust demand, need, desire for a home will create a situation where in the housing market does bottom sometime in 23 and bounce back strongly in the second half of the year and then resumes its, you know, 50 year track record of durable, steady growth in 24. So, you know, there's a lot of concern about a housing crash, housing crisis, 08 repeat that that's so silly. I, I, I could, I could, those concerns could not be farther from the truth that 08 didn't happen because home prices were high. 08 happened because the loans that were backing those high home prices were absolute SHIT. Today, <laughs> they're not. There, there are no garbage loans out there. There are very few. That the loans that people secured for homes were at very low interest rates. And they're able to afford them. Again, the consumer is strong. So I don't see an 08 blow up happening. I don't even see much of a slowdown really continuing or accelerating in the housing market. I think the bottom is very close within the next six months. We bottom and we rebound in 23, 24. So my outlook for the housing market is now is a pretty good time to get bullish on housing stocks, housing related stocks. They're cyclical. This is a down cycle. You buy cyclical stocks when they're in a down cycle and the bottom is on the horizon. That's where we are with real estate. That's where we are with housing. So I really like the whole housing sector right now from an investment perspective. If I were an investor, I would be buying, not if I were an investor, but if I were somebody who was actively putting money to work right now, I would say home-related stocks are pretty interesting. Okay. So it seems like we have a lot to look forward to in 2023. Um, but I want to shift gears real quick. Uh, you know, we've talked about it before. Uh, we live in 
a global economy. Um, mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about some of the politics that have been going on globally. Mm -hmm. UK's prime minister has just gotten the axe after 45 days. China's president is making aggressive moves to solidify control. Seems things are escalating between Russia and Ukraine. And even OPEC, as we've talked about before, is playing politics now with the oil production cut to counter US, the US reserve drain. Yep. Um, with all of these uh, political headwinds, how does this impact the market? Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it creates a, a, a tax on stocks. And what I mean by that is it will weigh on sentiment related to stocks. But in terms of fundamentals, not much. China stuff, yeah, avoid Chinese stocks. Okay, that's fine. Uh, Russia, Ukraine, I, I don't think that those tensions are going to flare up much more. In fact, I'm hearing chatter in D.C. or, you know, through news pipelines that, you know, people are going to try to push for an end to that war and, and get to some resolution. So I, I don't think things get worse there before they get better. I think they just get better there. Um, OPEC plus trying to play politics. Screw them. That's totally bullcrap. But uh, that, you know, I think all that's going to do is create more incentive for the rest of the world to shift away from relying on, on OPEC plus for their energy production, energy needs. Uh, so that, that's a net positive. Um, and then over in UK, what's happening over there is, you know, somebody came in and, and did a horrible job and got replaced. So that's what happens. That's what happens in this world. You, you, you have a job yeah. you do really badly, you know, you're going to get replaced and someone else is going to come in and do a better job. So yeah, there's a lot of geopolitical turnover, turmoil, change, whatever you want to call it, but it's really kind of just par for the course. China is a communist party and they were going to solidify power around, around Xi. Like that was, that's what happens. Uh, UK prime minister did a bad job. She got replaced. That's what happens. OPEC plus decides they want to control the oil market. Well, it's going to piss everybody off and everybody else is going to try to do something else. That's what happens. So yeah, there are things happening, but I don't think there are any cause for significant concern. And I think there are solutions to all these problems and those solutions are being enacted. So uh, in the interim, in the short term, it will create a headwind for stocks, but medium to long term, I don't see any cause for concern with any of these geopolitical uh, crises as it relates to the stock market. Okay. Uh, good to know on that front. Uh, big three check-in, space, robotics, climate tech, your big three, your favorites. Mm -hmm for 2023 anything new to report there or still your favorites still my favorites and something that i've been looking into a lot is actually just this uh like the great human shortage i'm sure you, you've heard about this we kind of just talked about it um a couple minutes ago people are not having kids anymore um the global population especially in developed economies is probably peaking and going to decline because people are not having kids anymore. That's a massive problem. Like when people are doing their, people like me, analysts are doing their economic modeling and doing their forecasts for, for stocks and for growth, we can just assume as a baseline that the economy is going to grow by 2 to 3% per year because there's more people right? There's more demand, there's more production, there's more, there's more firepower, more human capital. So we can just assume that, okay, population's growing one or 2%, that'll lead to two to 3% GDP growth, done. That assumption is probably going to break pretty soon. 
because people aren't having kids and the population is is dwindling. And so I think as a result of that, it's going to really create long-term, super strong long-term tailwinds for robotics, for automation, for that stuff, because the labor force simply is not going to be able to sustain the economy we have today unless we integrate robots into that labor force because the labor force is going to shrink. So we need robots. We need automation. We need those things to essentially sustain our way of life. That's how I'm looking at it from a big macro picture next 10 to 15 years. And so I'm really digging into this, this labor shortage, this great human shortage. Okay. What are the drivers? Why is it happening? Uh, will it persist? Is it going to be a real big problem or just kind of a problem? So I'm really digging into that right now. And I'll provide probably an update next week or the week after, but that's where my head is. And the more I dig into that, the more I become really bullish on robotics and automation. Um, it just it does look like the labor force is is going to shrink in a way that is very problematic for the global economy, uh, especially the U.S. economy and especially the European economies. And so when we look at those two economies, we're get, those economies are going to need robotics, automation, things like that to simply sustain their current levels of output, their current levels of production. And um, that's why I, I get more and more bullish on robotics the deeper I look into that specific problem. Well, definitely looking forward to hearing some more of that research as you develop it. Uh, but right now, I want to get into some of our fan questions, uh, starting off real quick. And I think that this might be a question that coincides with the season. Maybe somebody wants to be Luke Langle for Halloween. MS asks, Luke, I like your vests. Where can I buy them? Let's see, this one's, this one's North Face. I don't really have like a place where I buy them. I'll just kind of go around sometimes and... See a vest that I like and, and wear it. I actually, I, let's see, I, I hate shopping for myself. Like I, I hate buying new clothes. So I think that I bought like a round of vests like three years ago and I haven't bought any vests since then. Like I bought like six vests three years ago and that's it. I just have them in a rotation and that's about, that's all I do. So uh, Vineyard Vines is one of them, North Face, the, another one's Columbia, um, yeah. I don't really have a, a style or a preference. Whatever, whatever it looks good and has has the right price, I will, I will go ahead and buy it. Now, on that note, what I will say is, as you know, I'm a huge fan of Crocs. Love yes. Crocs shoes. Love them. And one of the reasons I love them is because of their durability. You can buy a pair of Crocs and you can wear it for years and years and years and years and years and not need a new pair. I very unfortunate had to buy my first new pair of Crocs in three years or four years this past week. It was, it was a heartbreaking moment for me. My old Crocs, <laughs> I, I, I got them wet. I left them out in the sun. And apparently if you do that, they shrink a little bit. And so I put them on and I was like, wow, these are tight. And I asked my wife, are these yours? Because uh, they were that tight. But um, they gave me blisters. And so I had to go buy a new pair of Crocs for the first time in three years. That was disappointing. Um, but in, in, in any event, yeah, I, I don't like shopping for myself. Um, so these vests are, you know, whatever the heck was on sale that day. Um, I'm, I'm a bargain guy. <laughs> All right. North Face and Vineyard Vines for uh, MS if you're looking to be Luke for Halloween. Uh, Steve Cook, stocks or cryptos? 
Um, why not both? They're, they're going to go together. Um, if indeed the risk on rally materializes in the way we think it will materialize, AKA driven by fed pause or fed slowdown, pause, pivot, lower yield, strong earnings in 23. That's a backdrop against which both stocks and cryptos rally together. So why not diversify? Why not own a little bit of both? Um, I think that 23 is going to be a good year for both assets. If you're looking to get more risk on, cryptos are probably the way to go because cryptos probably have a bit more upside. They're just the riskiest of riskiest assets. So um, if you're looking for more high risk, high reward type stuff, that's going to be found in the crypto world. But I think both assets will do well in 2023. Okay. Uh, Stephen Polk has two questions. Uh, food is still going higher and higher. What about that? And is NVIDIA a buy at this point? Right. So food is going higher, but it's going higher for um, kind of uh, one-off reasons that should resolve themselves, mostly related to weather, lack of, of rain throughout um, America and throughout parts of Europe. So that is, um, it's not driven by like the war in Europe anymore. It's not driven by things that we could see extending in 2023, 2024, 2025. It's going up because, hey, you know, it's a bad season for growing. But what we know about bad seasons for growing is that means next year is probably going to be a good season for growing. Now, importantly, the kind of second part of that is the Fed doesn't pay attention to food prices. The Fed pays attention to core inflation. Core is X food and energy, right? So the Fed's not truly paying attention to headline inflation. They're paying attention to core inflation. They're paying attention to the stuff not related to food and energy. So a Fed pivot, a Fed pause, a Fed slowdown is not contingent upon higher food prices. You're right. Food prices are going higher. Yet that Wall Street Journal article came out on Friday and said the Fed's considering a slowdown. So clearly the Fed's not really all that concerned about food prices going higher. They know that's related to weather stuff that they cannot control. Whether they hike rates or don't hike rates, the weather is going to be the weather. So they know that. They're not worried about it. You shouldn't be worried about it from an investment perspective. Um, and therefore, I think that, you know, we're just going to take the higher food prices for now and hope that next year we get a better growing season. Okay. And then, uh, uh, again, is, part, yeah. is NVIDIA a buy at this point? Oh, you know me and semi. So I talked about you want to buy cyclical industries when the bottom is, is in sight. I'm not sure the bottom's in sight for semis just yet. That we're definitely, it's a cyclical industry. We're in a down cycle, but I don't know if I can see the bottom quite yet. The, the data I'm looking at does not imply to me a bottom is visible. Once that bottom becomes visible, NVIDIA becomes a screaming buy. So does AMD. So do a lot of those chip stocks. But as of right now, I don't see the bottom. I don't have enough data to give me visibility into the bottom. And therefore, I'm remaining not bearish on NVIDIA and AMD, but I'm staying neutral, staying on the sidelines and not rushing in to buy them. We did just go on our biggest stock grind spree uh, since COVID-19, since March 2020, over the past two weeks. We did not buy any semiconductor stocks. We bought a bunch of high growth tech stocks, a bunch of – so what, what we're seeing in the market and what we got really aggressive on is – you know me. I like to invest in smaller technology stocks because they have more upside potential. And because large cap tech stocks tend to get pretty overvalued because everybody piles into them. But what this sell-off has enabled or offered us the opportunity to do is buy large cap tech stocks, mid and large cap tech stocks at significant discounts. So we're taking advantage of that. So our buying spree over the past two weeks has been mostly concentrated in bigger tech stocks that have just, go just gone on flash sale. Because there are a lot of tech stocks out there, really high quality, high margin, 
secular compounders with big cash flows, big moats, and 100% certainty they're going to be around in 5, 10 years. Those stocks, a lot of those stocks are now trading two or more standard deviations below their five-year average sales multiples, cash flow multiples, earnings multiples, book value multiples. So we're buying a dip in those. That's where our buying has been concentrated. And unfortunately, when you look at a name like NVIDIA, it actually is not in that wheelhouse. It's not trading two standard deviations below because names like that got so bid up in the up cycle that they have a lot of air to come down. And so that's why we're not bullish on the semis, but we are bullish on a lot of tech stocks. But look for the ones that are trading significantly below where they have traded in terms of valuation multiple over the past five to 10 years. That's where you want to put your money to work today, because if this bounce back does happen, those stocks are going to bounce back to their normal valuation levels. You're going to get a nice 20, 30, 40, 50% pop in those stocks. So that's where our buying spree has been focused, not on semis, on those types of stocks. Just FYI. And again, there will be a time where you're going, where semis are going to be a buy again, just not right now. There is a time to buy everything. And that is a very important, <laughs> that is a very important point, honestly, that people mm -hmm. get so caught up in this idea that a trend is going to last forever. No trend lasts forever. Everything operates in cycles, everything. And so the key to smart investing, and honestly, this is where this is a lesson that I've learned over the past two years uh, in the market that, you know, I started investing in, in 2013, 2012, 2013, and, and I invested through what was a very strong time in the market. And this has been the first time that I've really been actively trading, investing in, in a horrendous, long, drawn out bear market. And so I've learned lessons too. And that's one thing you have to know about the market is the moment you stop learning lessons from the market is the moment you start and will continue to lose money because you have to always be humbled by the market, always learn from it and always get better at your craft. Always, 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 always. If you're a 40% three-point shooter, try to become a 45% three-point shooter. If your on-base percentage is, is 300, try to get to 350, right? Always try to get better at whatever you're doing. And so, yeah, I've learned from this market. And one thing I've learned is that I totally screwed up by thinking that the, the tech mega trend was going to last forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You know, as soon as people started thinking that in 2021 is when tech stocks got pummeled. They got absolutely <laughs> crushed because everybody started thinking that trend was going to last forever. And now everybody's thinking, oh, this trend of, of oil and gas and energy is going to last forever. And it's not. It's going to get pummeled. And then you're going to get a rebound and a cycle for the things that have been pummeled are going to rebound. And then the things that have been soaring are going to crash. And then it's going to all happen all over again, right? Everything in the market operates in cycles. And the key to investing, the key to making a lot of money in the markets consistently through Baron Bull is to buy the things that are in a down cycle before they turn into an up cycle and sell the things in an up cycle before they turn into a down cycle and then reverse the pattern when those two go back to the up cycle, back to the down cycle, so on and so forth, right? So that's what you have to do as an investor. And right now, when I look at the markets, I see a lot of things that are in a down cycle that are ready to go into an up cycle. And that's why I'm really, really bullish on the things that are really beaten up and not so bullish on the things that are really extended, like oil and gas, like energy, like uh, staples, like defenses. I think those names are on an up cycle and they're going to crest and come down. And then the things that are in a down cycle are going to crest and go higher. And then soon enough, I guarantee you, one, a promise I will make, the stocks I am pounding on the table on right now, a lot of them, 
I'll probably say let's sell those in three or four years because they're at that point in time, they'll have reverse course, they'll have soared, they'll be taking over the world and everybody and their best friend will say, bye, 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 bye. And that's when we sell. <laughs> that's when we sell. The intelligent investor is a realist who sells to optimists and buys from pessimists. Always remember that. I forgot that for a 12-month stretch after the pandemic because the game, the party was so big, right? The party mm. was massive. Everybody was making so much money. These tech stocks, these growth stocks were soaring to the moon. And in that moment of insanity, in that moment of greed, a lot of us, including myself, forgot that the intelligent investor buys from pessimists and sells to optimists. Right now, we have a lot of pessimists out there. Buy from them. In 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, those pessimists are going to become crazy optimists. <laughs> Sell to them. Then when it comes back down, they'll become pessimists. Buy from them. When it goes back up, they become optimists. Sell to them. Let's just do that cycle over and over again every three to five years for the next 50 years, and we'll make a lot of money. That is something that we have to master, something we have to execute, and something that thankfully – we were able to learn in the in the 2022 bear market that is that is upon us right now. Okay, uh, last question from Jan Jeroma. What are your thoughts about Clover Health? C L O V. Right, Clover Health. Um, I don't get it to be honest. I, I don't understand why the world really needs Clover Health as as a business as a service. Um, they claim to have some proprietary tech advantage. I don't see it. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I just don't get the bull thesis, really. Maybe it's just a lack of understanding. Maybe I haven't dug deep enough into it. Maybe there is something there. But upon first glance, and admittedly, I haven't spent a lot of time looking at the stock. But upon first glance, going through the deck, going through the the, the 10K filings, I was like, I don't, I don't really see it. I, I don't really get it. It doesn't get me excited. Um, the stock is very cheap. It's got a lot of cash on the balance sheet. So it's got that going for it. Short squeeze potential, definitely very high. Could it have a nice, you know, little rally here? Absolutely. But when I talk about buying stocks that are going to be big winners in the long term, I'm not sure Clover makes that cut. So that's why I don't really spend much time talking about it or even looking at it. Are there other, uh, and this is just based off of what I just looked at right there. Are there other healthcare plays that provide what they're doing that make better plays? Or is that just a sector to that's not appealing to you? I don't, I mean, the way they're, I, I don't like that form of healthcare innovation. The form of healthcare innovation that I do like is the form of healthcare innovation that leverages uh, artificial intelligence to diagnose and deliver treatments. I think that is a very powerful um, usage of technology. So whether it's robotic surgery systems, whether it's having an AI-powered teleconversation, telemedicine appointment, whether it's leveraging um, robotic uh, prescription systems to fill prescriptions and deliver those systems or deliver those prescriptions, um, that's where I, I like healthcare innovation. As far as what they're doing, I, I don't I don't like that form of healthcare innovation. So are there alternative plays in that realm? To me, probably, but I'm just not personally excited about it. I'm much more excited about, okay, who's using AI to better treat diseases? Who's using robots to better perform surgeries? 
who's using a combination of both to reduce cost in the system, reduce waste, and thereby deliver a cheaper product to the end consumer. That's where I'm excited, not in you know what Clover is doing, really. Okay. Well, great insights for our listeners and HGI investors, as always. Luke, any last words before we wrap today? Um, you know, I kind of, I think I said it all really. I mean, just this, this whole idea of just cycle, 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 cycles, and to never get too bullish or too bearish and to always learn from the market and, and be humbled by it. Um, no one's going to be right all the time, but what we can do as investors is acknowledge when we're right, acknowledge when we're wrong and not stay wrong. And so I think that a lot of people feel defeated in 2022. Average investor portfolio is down 45%. I mean, that's, that's a killing. Um, a lot of people feel defeated. It's at that moment that you can either take that feeling of defeat and just hang it up and say, I'm done with this. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to make money. Or <laughs> you can take it as motivation to get it back go and find a strategy that's going to work over the next 12 months, 24 months, and get it back and then some. Those investors are going to be winners. And that's what I'm trying to do for investors. And I'm trying to say, okay, it has been a rough 12 months, very rough. Let's go get it back. Right now, I feel there's an opportunity to go and get it back. Let's go do that. So it's not for everybody, but for the people that want to do it, I'm here. And that's what I'm going to keep doing is try and get it back for people that lost, you know, 45% in 2022 average portfolio drawdown to me. That, that's just a wild statistic. That is true. That's 50, basically 50% that the average retail investor has lost half of their investment in 2022. That is it's baffling. So from that perspective, we got to work really hard to get it back. Let's do that. I'm putting in all this work. I'm very confident saying a massive counter rally is underway. I think people who buy today might not be the bottom, but you're going to make a lot of money over the next 12 months, 24 months, 36 months. You have to buy when the market's down 25%. You just have to. History says it always comes back with jaw-dropping returns. So let's do it. Let's buy the market down 25%. Okay. Well, I want to thank everybody for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comments section. We'd love to hear any of the topics you'd like us to cover or see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you all next week, hopefully with some pictures of Luke as Elvis. Until then, bye all.